Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Liam McCollum Show. It's just me today. Um, I missed my podcast on Wednesday, and as I'm sure you can tell, I'm a little sick, so I'm sorry if that's annoying. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing another solo episode today, and uh, I figured I would just kind of update you on some of the things I've been doing on Substack. Uh, for anyone who's been watching my podcast or following me on, on Substack, you know that I, I did a podcast with Dan Sanchez a couple weeks ago, and it really motivated me to start writing every day. He, he taught me about, um, or he, he told me about the, the methods that he's adopted to write every day, or at least publish something every day. If, if not right, he will include like a, a quote from a book that he's read or a book that he's found interesting. Um, and, and I've been trying to adopt similar principles. So I just kind of wanted to, uh, share with you some of the things I've been doing on, on Substack. And thankfully I, I found out how to uh, share my screen on StreamYard this time. Uh, I struggled to share my screen in the last stream. Um, but I just wanted to show you a few of these and then I, I recorded or I, I wrote a longer post uh, that I, I just published today. Um, if this, is no uploaded on November 17th. Uh, so yeah, I, um, the last time I recorded, I shared with you my writings on Spooner and boating. And I gave you a little bit of, of my, uh, perspective on the midterms and, um, things like that. And since then I've, I've written, I think I've written every single day for a week now, uh, maybe a little over that now. Um, and to show you maybe like one of the quotes that I've included, uh, I, I wrote about Rothbard and ethics of liberty, and I just kind of explained um, how he thought about natural law. And, and um, he, he kind of, in ethics of liberty, he talks about the, the failure of classical natural law. So I published a quote about that um, just because I wasn't that motivated to write that day. And, and I kind of gave background on how I found my interest in, in natural law and how it actually took me a while to read Ethics of Liberty, um, even while I was a libertarian. I, I hadn't uh, read Rothbard for a couple of years. So um, this is the excerpt that I included in that article. It says, as we have indicated, the great failing of natural law theory from Plato and Aristotle to the Thomists and down to Leo Strauss and his followers in the present day is to have been profoundly statist rather than individualist. This classical natural law theory placed the locus of the good and a virtuous action in the state with individuals strictly subordinated to state action. Thus, from Aristotle's correct dictum that man is a social animal, that his nature is best fitted for social cooperation, the classicists leaped illegitimately to a virtual identification of society and the state, and thence to the state as the major locus of virtuous action. Uh, so yeah, that's that's one of the quotes that stood out to me that day. Um, so I included that in that post. And then since last time we recorded, I also uploaded just a, a pretty short review of um, All Quiet on the Western Front, the new uh, Netflix um, film, uh, the German produced, uh, version of the film. And I, I gave a little bit of my, um, uh, my take on it. I, I thought it was pretty dang good. It was a, it's a really powerful, 
anti-war film and i think it being in the the german language uh really heightens the theme um and and you can you can find the rest of my thoughts there uh i also wrote about magdeburg and the the tyranny of a bear wolf so i wrote about uh the magdeburg confession which i'm i've talked about on on podcasts before and then i i included some podcasts uh in, in a post called Fiat Culture and Fiat Elites. Um, I recommended two podcasts that kind of talk about the FTX scandal um, and and what happened there. And then I, I include another podcast uh, or a speech done by Jeff Dice where he talks about uh, Fiat Culture and how um, economics isn't separate from our culture and how uh, you know, bad monetary policy and uh, high time preference leads to fiat culture as well as fiat elites and fiat uh, architecture and things like that. And I suggest in the article that FTX is just another demonstration that we have fiat elites. Um, so, yeah. And then I just wanted to show you before I get into this longer piece, uh, something really funny that happened the other day uh <laughs> uh so i i don't know if you guys saw but um there were i'm sure you saw there were headlines uh about russia uh launching missiles into poland and killing two uh people in poland and you know <laughs> i kind of got a little distracted by the news while i was preparing the longer post um that i'll share with you today and I, I went on Twitter and I found that Jack Posobiec, uh, this famous, pretty popular conservative, was suddenly clamoring for war. And some people have said that it, it was satir sat satirical at the time. And he was just joking because he is now backtracked on it. Um, but I don't think so. I think I think that clearly he was uh, saying that we needed to go to war. And um, he tweeted, uh, I'll show you here. If I can make this work. No way. I just had it working. Okay. Weird. All right. So I was able to make it work. Um, and now it's not working. So uh, I'll just read them to you. So Jack said, if this was a deliberate attack on the sovereign territory of Poland, it must be repaid in blood. <laughs> and... I got a little emotional maybe and I uh, kind of react just out, you know, I was being a reactionary. I emotionally responded. Uh, bro will tweet, quote, Ron Paul was right, unquote, then say shit like this. Uh, and almost immediately, Jack Kosobiak came back and he, quote, tweeted it and he said, why are your teeth yellow? <laughs> so he went into my profile and looked at my for, for those um, who haven't seen it or don't follow me on Twitter, I wish I could share my screen just to show you guys. Uh, he went in and saw my profile photo and he saw my photo with Ron Paul, which is uh, my profile photo. And he saw that my, my teeth were yellow, apparently. Um, many people in the comments pointed out that, that, that they aren't yellow. It's just the, uh, um, the shadow of the room. And I guess the, the, I don't know. It, they do look yellow in the photo, <laughs> but I, I commented, uh, Jack Posobiec, uh, I, I tagged him and then I said, Jack, why are you glowing in the dark? Um, 
and for people who don't get the reference, you should you should look that up. Um, but yeah, and then everyone was attacking him in the comments, and it really backfired on him. Uh, I his tweet that said why why are your teeth yellow got 600 likes, and because he amplified mine, I got around I think I'm over 7,000 likes now, and I got a boost in like 500 followers. A um, bunch of people were were defending me in the comments saying that obviously uh, he had resorted to personal attacks because I made a pretty dang good point. Um, and I typically don't cuss on, on Twitter. Uh, and the one time I say shit, uh, Jack Pasobiak comes out and, and he calls my, or says that my teeth are yellow. So maybe I'll think about that again. Um, but yeah, uh, my, my friend, Sam Peterson, he came out and he's like, is, is this really your best Jack? Uh, the Libertarian party, New Hampshire, <laughs> they came out and said, why is your nose brown from pleasuring NATO hawks? They responded to Jack saying that, uh, Someone said, and there's the personal attack. Uh, my friend Joel, also a Mises organizer, said, you've lost what little credibility you had, Neocon. Uh, Jose Gallison said, Liam's right, though. Um, and then Paul Allen came back uh, and, and he said, he quote tweeted his, why are you your teeth yellow uh, tweet? And he said, in which Liam McCollum wins this engagement. Uh, so yeah, you can you can check out that that Substack. I I really wish I could share it with you. I don't know why it's not working, um, but yeah. So that happened. I I believe that was two days ago now, um, and we have now figured out that it was likely a Ukrainian missile that killed uh, the two Polish citizens. So um, yeah, that that was an interesting and just a demonstration of how quick people clamor for war and how it's all just emotional and we really should not have emotional responses uh very immediate responses uh result in bad policy and then i also uh did one more uh post last night about the new ask an austrian podcast that i'm running for the libertarian party mises caucus um and i kind of explained the successes that i've had with the mises caucus and that the mises caucus has had overall uh, both in the state and at the national level. And then I just, uh, I, I say now that the Libertarian Party has successfully taken over the party. We are launching some new initiatives. Uh, recently, the caucus has announced Project Decentralized Revolution, the Take Human Action Tour, and runaslibertarian.com. And a few months ago, as a part of the caucus's educational aim, I was asked, uh, I was tasked with managing the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus's exciting new Ask an Austrian podcast. Um, for people who don't know who listen to this show, the vision of that podcast is to give you the opportunity to ask Austrian economists or libertarian thinkers working today in the Misesian tradition, any questions you might have about economics, libertarian philosophy and ethics. Um, Walter Block, Mark Thornton, Jonathan Newman, Per Byland, and, and Patrick Newman are all recent guest hosts of the Ask an Austrian podcast. And for anyone who wants to uh, submit questions, you can go over to askanaustrian.com and submit them there. Uh, last night we had uh, Guido Holzman on the show, which was was awesome. And then I I included just a preview of the podcast for for people who are interested in it. Um, it it's a short question and a, a short answer. Um, so I, I just included one of the 
the questions that um, one of our members submitted for Holzman and, and just a little rough transcript of Holzman's um, response. So if anyone wants to see that and isn't uh, bought into whether they should listen to the podcast, definitely go over to my Substack and uh, read that little transcript to see uh, just a preview of, of what you might get on while listening to the, the podcast. I'm really excited to do it. Um, we've been, I think yesterday's was our 10th podcast. So it's it's been pretty successful and, and we keep getting new guests on the show. So uh, definitely subscribe to it. I've linked to uh, the links in, in this description of this video as well as in the sub stack. But the most recent um, article that I wrote, I wanted to share with you today and really to be the focus of today's podcast. Um, so it, it's called More People, Less Malthusianism. Uh, and the subtitle is Happy 8 Billion People. Uh, so the United Nations reported just a couple days ago that, that the global population has reached 8 billion people. Um, and to some, this is terrible news. Uh, and, and I just ask in this article, how often do you hear people today say, something to the effect of uh, they don't want to bring a child into this world or the world cannot sustain the current population or that uh, humanity is parasitic or something to this effect. And um, I just point out that many of my generation subscribe to this belief without digging into the evidence or understanding the philosophical roots of, of such a statement. And I say, honestly, I think many adopt this line of thinking merely because they hear someone else say it. I've, I've seen this problem firsthand. Um, during my undergraduate program, I was taking a class completely unrelated to this topic, and my professor paused his lecture one day to go on a tirade about how optimistic he was that my generation was active and understood that our, and, and he said this, quote, Earth cannot sustain the current population. Um, and, and I write, I couldn't believe it. To hear a professor promote what I'll argue in this post is fundamentally and so blatantly evil and anti-human ideology. Sorry, I'll argue in this post is a fundamentally and so blatantly evil and anti-human ideology at the front of class was a surprise, but in hindsight, I should have expected it considering that I had already been taught Marxism and Keynesian economics in prior courses. At least in those cases, they tried to uphold an illusion of hey, I'm just teaching this, not promoting it. But here, the professor explicitly confessed he believed this. I hope that none of the students agreed with him solely because he was their authority. I believe it is very important that people examine and understand the evidence and philosophical roots of such statements and don't commit to them without knowing that there's an entire set of assumptions and decades or centuries of philosophy packed into that one simple belief. As for this idea that Earth is overpopulated, or that the world is so evil that we shouldn't bring a child into it, or that humanity is a parasite and should leave na nature untouched, the roots are deep. They are based on bad theology, bad economics, and bad philosophy. Um, so yeah, I, I continue. Um, for Christians, uh, beware of deception. And I say, first, as a Christian, I want to warn that we should resist any inversion of scripture as it is likely deception. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent asks, Did God really say that you must not eat from a tree in the garden? We can respond in the affirmative. Yes, he did, as it is written down. 
In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, he says clearly, of the tree of the of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But Adam and Eve fell to the serpent's temptation and deception. Similarly, God calls us to be fruitful and multiply, and we should be cautious and resist the temptation of anything promoting the opposite. And then I get into the Malthusian roots. And, um, you know, one of the motivations that I wanted to, uh, one of the motivations for doing this, um, as I discussed about the the Dan Sanchez podcast, um, is Dan was explaining to me that when he was learning Mises and Rothbard, he used writing as a method to do that. So as he was reading through uh, Austrian economics, he would write about it. And then he would publish it in the Mises Institute or Mises Wire, and um and as he was writing it you know it, it kind of helped him memorize these things and i wanted to do that with this topic too because i hadn't really looked deeply into uh malthusianism before but i wanted to actually look into the the philosophy and um something else sanchez or dan said was that um was that you should also not uh strive for perfection with these articles and just hit publish. Uh, so this article isn't as well researched as maybe I would like, uh, but I still hit publish because um, I had been working on it for a few days. Uh, but I learned a lot and I hope you do too. Um, so I can I continue in the article, uh, the Malthusian roots. In 1798, Thomas Malthus published an essay on the principle of population. In the treatise, he argues that humanity would become so overpopulated during times of prosperity that the earth could not produce enough resources to sustain the population. The prosperity itself would enable population growth, and as, at a certain point, the population would outpace the earth's resources. Put another way, he believed population growth is potentially exponential, while the earth's supply of resources is linear. The consequence of this, Malthus believed, is catastrophic. The power, this is, this is Malthus, he says, the power of population is so superior to the power of the earth to produce substance, substance, subsistence for man that premature death must in some shape or other visit the human race. The vices of my, mankind are active and able ministers of depopulation. They are the precursors in the great army of destruction and often finish the dreadful work themselves. But should they fail in this war of extermination, sickly seasons, epidemics, pestilence, and plague advance in terrific array and sweep off their thousands and tens of thousands. Should success be still incomplete after all of this, gigantic inevitable famine stalks in the rear and with one mighty blow levels the population with the food of the world. And then I continue to prevent this cataclysmic event or what has been called the Malthusian catastrophe, Malthus proposed preventative and positive checks. Preventative checks impacted the fertility rate through sexual abstinence, postponed marriages, contraceptives, and abortion, while positive checks shorten the human lifespan, such as war, plague, and famine. In later works, he distinguishes between moral restraint, like abstinence, and vicious restraint, like birth control. He believed that the human population's natural tendency was to go through this cycle of misery, being cyclically suppressed by these preventative and positive checks. This hysteria took over the world, 
And as we have witnessed with countries like China and their one ch child policy or with India and its two child policy, these measures have sometimes been implemented coercively. But Malthus was wrong. To fully understand his perspective, it is essential to note the context in which Malthus was writing. In 1790, just eight years before Malthus's essay, the global population was only 931.5 million. Though there had been a relatively significant increase in the population compared to the rest of history in Malthus's time, Malthus had not observed the counterfactual or what would become the hockey stick of human progress alongside its cousin, the hockey stick of human population. The growth rate from 10,000 BCE to 1700 was just 0.04%, and in year zero, the population was 190 million. So Malthus was able to observe a small historical increase in the global population, but he did not and could not foresee the graph below. And I include a, a graph of the size of the world's population over the last 12,000 years, and I wish I could share it because um, I, I was able to before I started the stream, the stream but uh, essentially it's just, yeah, the, the size of the world's population over the last 12,000 years um, around, you know, kind of the 1700s, it starts to go up like this and it's just a hockey stick from, from then on. And it's, I think, yeah, so it, it reached 4 billion in, in 1975, 5 billion in 1987, 6 billion in 1999, and then 7 billion in 2011 and 7.9 billion in 2022. And now we know that it is at 8 billion. Um, and, and I say, and what would have surprised Malthus even more is the corresponding graph, uh, which is real GDP per capita around the world. And similarly, it's just a hockey stick. Um, for some reason, uh, you know, it, it just uh, exponentially goes up. Uh, and according to Malthus, the above hockey sticks of human prosperity and the human population could not have occurred together. Uh, Malthus failed to appreciate and consider the human population's ability to adapt and that human minds are a resource too. With more brains comes more innovative and efficient solutions to problems. He underestimated human ingenuity and the human spirit. Um, in, in 1701, for example, British agriculturist Jethro Jethro Tull invented the seed drill. This allowed him to plant seeds more efficiently instead of doing it hand by hand. He also developed the horse-drawn hoe, which dug up the soil and allowed plants more access to moist, moisture the air, to moisture and air. Um, and then I include an image of uh, the seed drill. And I say innovations like this during the agricultural revolution in Britain generated an unprecedented decrease in agricultural production or increase in agricultural production and agricultural output grew faster than the population over the 100 years ending in 1770. According to Wikipedia, this increase in the food supply, supply contributed to the rapid growth of population in England and Wales from 5.5 million in 1700 to over 9 million by 1800. 101. Though domestic production gave, though domestic production, um, just a second, I lost my spot. Though domestic production gave way increasingly to food imports in the 19th century as a population more than tripled to over 35 million. 
Malthus did not anticipate the population growth would drive innovation. Marian Tupi, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, for The Hill writes, looking as far back as 1850, we analyzed prices of hundreds of food items, metals, minerals, and fuels, and found that over time, population growth has fueled human innovation, which in turn has prov provided what we have called a superabundance of resources that makes our lives better. And across the board, commodities have been growing dramatically cheaper for consumers. Between 1900 and 2018, the length of time a blue-collar American worker had to work enough to earn enough money to buy pork dropped by 98.4%. For rice, the time dropped by 97.6%. The drop in cocoa, wheat, and corn was 97.1%. 96.7% and 96.1% respectively. The time price for non-edible -ed goods like rubber, aluminum, potash, and cotton, all of which are valuable, valuable inputs in the production processes that impact processes that impact the prices of other goods and services plummeted by between 99.4% and 95.8%. All the while, the population of the United States rose from 76 million to 328 million. And, and I have a, a bolded um, uh, subtitle and it says the obsession with scientism. And I say to understand the economic problems of Malthus and why Malthus was and remains popular despite historical evidence, I turn to economist and libertarian theorist Murray Rothbard. In his article, Malthus and the Assault on Population, Rothbard takes aim at Malthusianism in saying that the assertion that population eternally tends to increase such that it keeps people at a standard of living below or at the subsistence level is mechanistic and is without evidence. He quotes Malthus, who says, quote, population tends to go on doubling itself every 25 years or increases in a geometrical ratio, while, quote, the means of subsistence increase in an arithmetical ratio. Rothbard argues that Malthus has no actual proof of these alleged ratios. He says, Rothbard says, the absurdly mechanistic view that people unchecked would breed like fruit flies cannot be demonstrated by simply selling out or spelling out the implications of the alleged, quote, doubling itself every 25 years, unquote. For example, taking the population of the world at any number, and he's quoting Malthus here, a thousand millions, for instance, the human species would increase in the ratio of 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, 512, etc. And that's the um, geometrical ratio. And subsistence as 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, etc. And that's because subsistence goes up arithmetically. In, in two centuries and a quarter, the population would be to the means of subsistence as 512 to 10. Rothbard continues, in a few more centuries at the same rate, the ratio of population to subsistence would begin to approach infinity. This is scarcely demonstrable in any sense, certainly not by referring to the actual history of human population that in most of Europe remained more or less constant for centuries before the industrial revolution. Rothbard says that, and I continue, Rothbard says that the fact that Malthus's work took over the, we over the Western world when other thinkers with similar views at other times 
were properly and understandably ignored in an age of joint growth in population and living standards can be ex explained because of the, the quote, spurious air of the scientific that Malthus's alleged ratios gave to a doctrine in an age that was increasingly looking for models of human behavior and its study in mathematics and the hard physical sciences. And I say, it seems that at the core of Malthusianism and Keynesianism is this desire for a quote, scientific study of economics. And this desire is animated by the idea that man and his behavior can be reduced to a science as if man can be denoted as a single number on some graph or that man is simply a piano key and that his behavior is mechanistic and will remain constant. As Matt Kibbe said on, on my podcast, the problem with the idea that you could turn politics, economics, and any of the so-called humane sciences into a positive objective science is that humans are not robots. Humans make choices. Humans have dreams and aspirations, and they can't easily be modeled the same way that particles in a physics experiment could be, or in the way that you would have inputs going into a calculus equation. And I wish I, I could include the video of that, uh, the clip from that interview. Um, I'll, I'll link to the interview in the description, but uh, I, I wish I could play the clip in this stream. Um, but I continue, Austrian economics and the study of human action, praxeology, inform us that there are no regularities in human action like there are in, high, in the hard sciences. We cannot quantify human action. Benjamin Marx, writing about Malthusianism at the Mises Institute, says, these Malthusian concepts, as they are commonly used, would have to be among the most un-Austrian. Subjective individualism is ignored. Uncertainty of the future is ignored. Impossibility of quantification of human action is ignored. And government intervention is always put forward as the solution. It is nothing more than the flip side of the free rider problem. We can exclude others. Therefore, we should not increase the rate or take more than our, than our fair or equal share in which we exclude others. Otherwise, there will be nothing left for others. What Malthus failed to realize is that as William Godwin nicely pointed out, quote, possible men do not eat, whereas real men do. What they will eat in the future and exactly how it is grown cannot be deduced, no matter how elaborate the Malthusian equations are. Arguing that there is already proof of overpopulation by citing a problem like poverty is no argument at all. It is to consider proof of overpopulation as its theorized result. Any numbskull can find statistics to show that if the re resource base stays the same and population increases, then all hell will break loose. This is the Malthusian mirage. Based on this sophisticated doctrine, believers go around telling people that we should desist from further folly, for the impending threat of doom is ever looming. And government, of course, is our only hope. Um, and then in this part, I, I title it the Neo-Malthusian Assault on Population. I say a relatively recent demonstration of this Malthusian fear-mongering and its failure to predict and map out human behavior is seen in Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb from 1968. In the Malthusian spirit, Ehrlich argued that population can't be maintained without rapidly de depleting non-renewable resources or converting renewable resources into non-renewable ones and without degrading the capacity of the environment to support the population. Ehrlich famously lost a bet against economist Julian Simon 
in predicting that the price of commodities would become more expensive expensive as the population increased and the population soaked up more resources. Simon, however, bet that as the population increased, there would be more people who could come up with innovative ways to extract resources and the costs of commodities would decrease. Um, Nikhil Sridhar, I, I am definitely not pronouncing that correctly, um, but Nikhil, writing at the Foundation for Economic Education, explains why Simon turned out to be correct in his article, Why Markets Are the Answer to Concerns About Overpopulation. Uh, he says, a growing economy can combat much of the risks of a population bomb because for growth to occur, resources cannot just be used up by consumers, but per se's law of markets, they also must be produced and used increasingly efficient by actors in the market. As the world's population grows, markets respond to increased demand for necessities like food and energy by changing prices and incentivizing producers to either produce more of that demanded good or explore new and innovative ways to extract resources, leading to greater and more efficient overall production. Contrary to the predictions of the doomsayers, food prices have dropped enormously in the last century, and he includes a link there. And I believe that specifically goes to PERC, which is uh, a Montana-based free market um, environmentalist organization. Uh, and, and he says, in India alone, food production has nearly quadrupled since the 1960s. Other resources like energy, metals, and timber have also enjoyed massive boosts in production, all enabled by global economic growth. He also tackles the argument that unfettered capitalism will result in the destruction of the planet or more pollution, like in the case of Delhi, India's smog. He says, as an economy expands, resource usage becomes increasingly efficient and economies tend to move away from ecological harmful behavior while raising the standard of living of its participants. In fact, the 2018 Yale Environmental Performance Index shows a clear positive correlation between economic growth and environmental performance. He concludes, it is clear that for the planet to keep up with a rapidly growing population, it is absolutely necessary to liberate the global economy from the fetters of needless regulation and burdensome taxes, and instead pursue policies that not only sustain the status quo, but also encourage further production and economic growth. Now, I continue in another part, uh, which I titled Today's Malthusianism, or Today's Malthusian, Malthusians, excuse me. Um, I say, despite Malthus and Ehrlich being proved wrong repeatedly, the fundamental ideas that motivate both seem to be incredibly popular today. The anti-human spirit seems to animate a lot of elites today, especially of the green extremist sort. In February 2019, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez claimed that there is, quote, basically a scientific consensus that the lives of our children are going to be very difficult, unquote, and young people, therefore, ask a, quote, legitimate question, is it okay to still have children, unquote. And in 2014, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a report suggesting that it is primarily humans that cause climate change and, quote, failure to reduce emissions could threaten society with food shortages, refugee crises, crises the, the flooding of major cities and entire island nations, mass extinction of plants and animals, and a 
climate so drastically altered, it might become dangerous for people to work or play outside during the hottest times of the year. The report said, quote, continued emissions of greenhouse gases will cause further warming and long lasting changes in all components of the climate system, increasing the likelihood of severe, pervasive and irreversible impacts for people and ecosystems. And then I, I link to um, Bob Murphy, uh, one of his articles in which he he takes on on that report and, and proves why even under their own um, uh, numbers, they're they're incorrect. Uh, and I think his his reasons are are uh, sound. And I, I actually got to listen to him give a talk about that as well. Um, so I, I recommend everyone check that article out. And I say, I'm not the first to point out that these politicians are motivated by Malthusian ideas. In the same article I cited above, Benjamin Marx says, quote, the Malthusian law is the basis of the environmental movement. Its application is often masked by the term, quote, carrying capacity, which is the number of individuals that a unit of area can hold. And more recently, ecological footprint, which is a measure of how many units of area an individual uses, literally an inversion of carrying capacity. In practice, ecological footprints have very amusing results. For example, if we all wanted to live like Bill Gates, at current resource levels, we would need multiple planet Earths. And then I say, the problem might be deeper, but I do think the pro and and that was just a subtitle for this section, and I say, but I do think the problem goes deeper than their pretentious and false models. At the core of it is a modern and paradoxically very human tendency not to comp contemplate human dignity. And this is motivated by a seductive fear and doubt that we cannot be fruitful and multiply in a world of finite resources or a distrust in human ingenuity's ability to replenish the earth and subdue it. Fundamentally, it is a failure to love thy neighbor. And as a result, we get a view that humans are just robots as discussed by Matt Gibby above. And occasionally some Malthusians, Malthusians make it more evident than others, like when Justice Sotomayor questioned in the case National Federation of Independent Business versus Department of Labor, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, why is a human not like a machine if it's spewing virus? And then I, I link to a tweet where um, uh, the, the tweet quotes Justice Sotomayor, uh, and, and essentially the context of what she's saying is why is a human not like a machine which OSHA can regulate if it's spewing virus? Uh, why can't they be mandated, um, you know, health regulations? Why can't we impose them to get uh, a vaccine? Uh, how are they different from a machine that, that is spewing, um, uh, I think it's like spewing sparks or, uh, you know, wood chips or something like that. Um, and then I, I just say, for those who are interested, I, I read through the decision of that Supreme Court, Supreme Court case with Mr. Deming, my honor civics teacher in high school. Uh, and I linked to that, that podcast where we read through the entire uh, decision. And then I continue. In another part of my interview with him, Matt Kibbe says, quote, it's pretty telling because if you look at the way central planners think about human beings, we are definitely just cogs in a wheel, pieces of a puzzle. We're part of the collective. So the individual literally doesn't matter. 
And you can see that play out again and again and again when authoritarian dictators trying to implement some collectivist philosophy. They can't possibly care about individual human beings, and that's why so many people die, uh, end quote. Similarly, if everyone is equal or all are just a part of the collective and there are no unique attributes to distinguish between individuals, people become replaceable or interchangeable. They're pawns to move around in their economic models and game theories. Murray Rothbard said something similar, as can be seen in this tweet below. Um, and the tweet is by the Foundation for Economic Education, and, and it reads, if each individual is unique, how else can he be made equal to others than by destroying most of what is human in him and reducing human society to the mindless uniformity of the ant heap? Um, I thought that was a very relevant quote by Murray Rothbard. And then the next section is titled, The Threat Before Us. And I say the biggest Malthusian threat today is in recent green extremist and ESG environmental social governance policies seen around the world. I talked with Clint Russell about these policies two months ago on my podcast, and I'll link to, to that um, interview as well. He explained how dangerous these policies are and what's driving them. And about halfway through the interview, I asked Clint um, something to the effect of, why shouldn't we regard all of these green extremist policies as genocidal considering they will result in mass genocide in the third world and um here is a rough transcript of his response i i would have just shared the the clip if i figured out how i could share my screen i'm gonna have to figure figure out how to fix that for future streams but uh this is this is what clint russell responded to my question with he says not just the third world. You could see people freezing to death in Germany this winter. This is imminent, ma'am, and they're progressing very aggressively. They're shutting down the remaining nuclear power plants in Germany this year, while you're looking in the face of, I think, 700% increase in gas costs to heat your home. The problem is so many people are true believers. They honestly believe carbon is going to kill us, so they are willing to sacrifice numbers of people. I can't give you one reason why these policies aren't genocidal. They're all Malthusians. All of them say the planet is overpopulated. And then I continue. And you can almost understand why they might be okay with such a sacrifice if you dared to grant their worldview for the sake of argument. If you granted that increased population and increased carbon emissions would result in mass death, perhaps mass death, but on a but on a smaller scale is a far better number to reconcile in their utilitarian calculation. But as we also learn from Austrian economics, the arrogant constructions of central planners must always fail. As economists Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek demonstrated, central planners are always unable to manage an economy due to the problems of dispersed knowledge and the impossibility of economic calculation in a centrally planned economy. We can be certain that if the modern central planners and the modern Malthusians get their way, there will be unintended consequences and mass death globally at a scale we haven't witnessed yet. In an age where Malthusians and central planners seem to be sprinting towards an energy crisis, mass starvation, another world war, and a nuclear holocaust, we need more voices to resist these ideas, to stand up 
to reject bad economics and to celebrate the gift of human ingenuity. Uh, and I just finished the article with, with a final note. Uh, the the section's called Final Note, You First. Uh, and it reads, I want to finish with a final note. As people smarter than me have suggested before, whenever someone says they're a proponent of population control, we must simply ask them which people or people should not have been born. Why not you? The simple matter of fact is they're likely not talking about reducing the population of the rich coastal elites living in San Francisco and New York. So if you think increased population is a problem, I just have one thing to say, you first. And uh, as I've been doing in a lot of these sub stacks, I just included some relevant tweets. Um, one is by, uh, oh man, I, I never remember how to pronounce this guy's name. Uh, Sefaidin Amos, I, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, but he, he put out a tweet on November 15th saying, happy 8 billion humanity. Uh, keep breeding and remember that Earth doesn't have too many humans. It has too many Malthusians. Uh, and then I also included a video which I wanted to end this stream with. Um, and maybe I'll be able to attach it at the end. Uh, but it's a it's a video by Jordan Peterson, who, I mean, he has been, he was very influential for me, on me in high school and um, early in high school. And uh, he recently came out and he, he was on uh, Piers Morgan's show and he was slamming Western leaders uh, for thinking that they'll, they'll defeat Russia and Ukraine and he said that he was terrified that that the current uh, green policies might cause 350 million people to freeze or starve this winter. And that's I think that's based off of U.N. projections. Um, so that's not he's just not fear mongering about that. Those are actual projections that that uh, official people ha have made about um, the result of of. Well, they'll probably say it's a result of this war, but. It's also a result of their unwillingness to um, pursue energy independence um, or increase dependence on Russia's uh, energy and, and trade. Um, they, they have, <laughs> uh, I, I really don't understand this and, and there's a lot of arrogance by our, our Western leaders. So I, I just attached that video and maybe I'll attach it to the end here. Uh, but then I include another tweet that, um, I wrote a couple days ago and it was Lex Friedman. It, it was responding to Lex Friedman who said, suspected Russian missile hits Poland, a NATO nation. Do not escalate this war. We want peace, not World War III. Humanity depends on it. And I said, resist the Malthusian desire for nuclear war. So yeah, uh, that's just the most recent article I've written um, since I didn't do a podcast on Wednesday because I was sick. I just wanted to upload this one um, and share with you some of the stuff I've been working on, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, I'll link to my Substack in the description for people to subscribe to it, and then uh, I'll also link to my link tree um, so people can find me on everything else like YouTube or Odyssey, uh, YouTube, if you're listening on a different platform, um, and then the audio uh, pod catchers. And then also remember to follow me on Twitter. I'll have that linked there. And uh, 
watch my most recent podcast, the one with Dan Sanchez and the last stream I did about Lysander Spooner. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, well, I don't, I can't speak to that because I don't know what the preconditions for peace might be. But I do know that naive notions that the Russians are going to lose somehow, or that we're going to win, I, I don't, I just don't understand. I don't understand that. Well, what do you mean we're going to win? What are we going to win here exactly? Well, I guess a victory would be that the Russians retreated from Ukraine. With, with Ukrainian ruins. Right. Well, that, okay, fine, that's a hell of a victory. Like, I think Putin could manage that because I think he could tell his people, and I think they might buy it. It's like, we accomplished our objective. We devastated Ukraine, and we kept it out of the hands of the West. And that's not great. It's not what we had hoped for, but it's better than the alternative. And I think they would buy that. And I think when, when Putin went into Ukraine, I thought... Well, I thought a bunch of things, which I, I made a YouTube video about that. People criticized like Matt. I thought, okay, well, what's happening here? Oh, I see. His, his end game for failure is that, that Ukraine is left in a smoking ruin. Mm. Oh, that's a victory. So then he can lose with impunity. Right. So how can we win? We can't win against Vladimir Putin anyways, because you cannot win against someone you cannot say no to. Period. And we can't say no to Putin because we sold our soul for his oil and gas. And we did that to elevate our moral stature in relationship to saving the planet. And so here we are, yeah. facing a very dire winter, hoisted on the petard of our own foolishness and moral presumption. We're saving the planet. We'll see. I don't think so. It doesn't look like it to me. And this is, this is the most catastrophic issue here. Assuming that we're facing an environmental crisis of planetary proportions, which is not something I buy, by the way, assuming we are, well, then I would imagine that you would put in place measures that would ameliorate that problem instead of exacerbating it. But all the measures you're putting in place are actually making the environmental problem worse. So how is that even vaguely acceptable? And I look at that and I think, Oh, I see. It's just like George Orwell said about middle-class socialists 50 years ago. It's not that you love the planet. It's that you hate humanity. So, well, have at her, boys and girls. And we'll see what happens this winter. And it's very terrifying to me. It is. Especially here, you know, because your energy prices have gone way out of control. And that's going to hurt a lot of poor people. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly around the world as well. The world bank already estimated that we've put 350 million people into what they call a food insecurity. 350 million. That's three times as many as the communists managed to kill. Maybe we can manage that in a winter. But the planet has too many people on it anyway, so 